You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week started with International Women's Day on Monday, which lots of big name brands and companies have embraced in the last few years. But some have criticized the day as one of uh, corporate platitudes and empty rhetoric, which does not translate into concrete change with more women represented on corporate boards or in the C-suite. We spoke about it with Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, who was the first black woman to lead a Fortune 500 company. We started by asking her why there is still such a large gap between rhetoric and results. Well, to be really frank, I think it's will. (laughs) Um, This is not, you know, we've gone around and around the bend around the fact that they are not there, that the talent's not there, that... Um, which we've proven, I think, over and over again that that's not true. We can, industry can, and should be able to find um, executive women who can take the seats in boardrooms and in the C-suite, and executive suite. And it, it has gotten better, that's for sure, but it's still at a snail's pace. Yeah. So this is, this, it's at the point where, you know, I've, I've been known to, speak against quotas and I've recently changed my tune pretty dramatically and said I'm all for quotas now because at the end of the day we keep asking for people to do the right thing we keep imploring you know we have an international women's day every year and we look at the numbers they're still small whole segments of the economy have very little to or no female leadership female governance um, infrastructure and it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to change. So I no. think what we have seen is if you put in place a rule, a law that says you have to do it, you know, surprise, surprise, the women start coming out of the woodwork per se. So yeah. I think we're at the point now where you just have to, we have to stop taking excuses and start moving. By the way, I will say one more thing. <laughs> women, white women are making progress here. Women of color are not. Yeah. So if you look at the number, women of color are not. So we still have a race issue. <laughs> we have a gender issue for sure. And then you layer on top of it that we have a race issue, women of color, so gender and race together, literally are left out of the discussion totally. And if you're in the C-suite or the executive suite, it's better than if you, you know, we, we, you just reporting on the impact of this massive change in employment has really impacted women throughout the economy worse than anyone else, and women of color significantly. Mm-hmm. So 
across the board, we're at the point where we can no longer um, we can no longer listen to excuses. We have to start to make moves. So t talk about the trajectory uh, of, of women uh, in, particularly in the big corporate America here. I mean, we have seen some progress. We've seen a bigger bench being built up at a lot of organizations. You could point to Citigroup and a lot of other uh, big banks out there that uh, once you get you know, sort of a step below CEO, CFO, there's a pretty big bench of potential CEO candidates down the road. When you talk about the trajectory of a woman's career and the idea that it could be derailed because of personal choices, whether it's uh, a child rearing or marriage or whatever, how do you, is that still sort of a valid excuse that companies use to try to say, okay, this is why we don't have enough women uh, in the pipeline? They don't use it publicly, that's for sure. If yeah. they're smart, they would never say it. But we know for a fact that that clearly is one of the factors still. They would never say it anymore. I mean, it's, it's an unacceptable um, conversation to say that, you know, because you've chosen, you've made a personal choice of being married, men do the same thing, or personal choice of having a child, thank God, or else the world would end, that we're going to actually penalize you for these two things. So they don't do that anymore. But we can see just following, as you say, the trajectory of a woman's career, there are stop points where you plateau for a long time. Childbearing and rearing age is one of these plateau points where you just sit still for a while. So even if you don't think you're doing it, company out there, whatever company you are, it is in the facts showing up that we do operate on women differently than we operate on men when they have to make some of these quote unquote lifestyle or personal choices, which are kind of an insane statement. Like I said, if you want to recreate the world, we actually going to penalize you for doing that is not a really good thing. I think that we've made progress. I don't want to be a, you know, a you know, a stuck in a stuck in a mud person. We've made a lot of progress. When I was a CEO, we had like twelve or thirteen women CEOs. Now we're in the thirties. That's good, but that you know, that's years and years and years to get half of the population represented at five percent of the of the seats is not, or six percent of the seats is really not acceptable. We have to make mm. moves, and I we've seen that it can happen, right? When states yeah. or governments say you have to do it, things start happening. Look at California. And to that end, you know, you're trying to do it with corporates leading. Poor Diversity Action Alliance, which is focused right. on race, but we're talking diversity in all its guises right now. And clearly women of color are the most hurt. Is that sort of carrot and stick that you're deploying with the Board Diversity Action Alliance working? Or do you need regulatory change? Do you need legal change like we've seen in California brought in across the U.S. and indeed the rest of the world? I'm not saying London or the U.K. is any better here. I think that we need all of the sticks in the fire to, to nudge this um, historic structure, this historic structure. Men, particularly white men, have defined, they Pick, they say the rules, they actually judge, they, they control this structure. So we need a, a large amount of um, disruptors to have this structure change. One is things like the Board Diversity Action Alliance. The more diverse your board is, the more likely it is that it will stay diverse and become more diverse. So if you have an African-American on the board, the more likely it is that you'll have a woman on the board and so, and so on and so on and so on. The more likely it is you'll have a Hispanic. So we need that. We do need, I think, we're at the point now where we have states and the NASDAQ and government's structures saying no more. We can't wait for you to kind of make up your mind to do it. So we're going to start putting in place 
quotas, rules that say, if you don't meet this, you can't do that. I didn't think I would ever get to the point where I say yes to this, but I, I'm at the point now where it's been forever and we're still waiting. So I think it's at the point, and we've seen that the performance doesn't go down. Women CEOs do as well as men CEOs. You know, diverse companies do better than non-diverse companies. Diverse leadership teams do better. So there's no longer a discussion about it's not a really good idea and we can't really find the people. There's all kinds of things that used to kind of hang out there. They no longer are valid. Right now, co some companies are figuring out ways to do it. And the people who don't figure out ways to do it will have to be told to do it. And I said, that's what I think is going to come if we don't, if we don't start to take it you know, control of our own futures here. Companies take control of their own futures. Are there legal regulatory ideas that you've seen put forth that codify in a good way what you'd like to see? Is there anything that any politician or regulator has uh, written down that you say, okay, this, this makes sense. This looks like a good framework for doing this. I think one of the thing that I, it's, it's still new and hasn't quite been done, but I think I like the idea that if you're going to go, if you're going to go public, um, and want to be listed on NASDAQ, go public, or want to be listed on NASDAQ, right. you have to have a diverse board. This, is, this gives impetus to start thinking about it when you're a baby company, right? When you're a young company, before your IPO. So I think things like that make it really good. That's yeah. one that I, I would absolutely, I'm all for. Second, states and the country, the UK and, and California, and I'm sure other places around the world that say, we're going to give you a certain amount of time. How many years is it going to be? We're going to give you two years. You have to diversify your board in two years. Go do it. So I think that this idea of quotas, and I don't like it to be called quotas, but I call it direction. This yeah. idea that you direct a company to, to do things is the best way to have it done. Everything else we've seen, it's a, it's a fitness start. Some people go for it. Some people don't. Uh, and I think that right now we're at the point, as I said, where we've been waiting for a long time on, you know, with the, I was, a, I became CEO in 2009, 2009. Mm. And <laughs> we're, we're now in 2021 and we're still having this discussion. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious here, uh, Ursula, about sort of uh, the, the sort of um, industry breakdown of where we're seeing gains being made. Uh, in our introduction to you, uh, we had a chart on the screen showing how there were certain industries that had uh, no female leadership at all, while there was a kind of a concentration in utilities and other sort of sectors. I'm curious if you can try to kind of distill for us why we're seeing sort of women funneled into certain industries like that, but maybe not necessarily in some of the, I guess, the more sort of uh, sexier, lack for lack of a better word, industries like uh, in the social media space and communication services? I think you said the word, right? It's sexier. I mean, uh, people, the people who govern and run these companies, many of them are young companies, which is a little disappointing. Um, <laughs> a little disappointing. They, they are not, they haven't bought into the game yet. You know, a lot of these companies are, I call them like locker room companies, right? You know, the, they kind of all hang out together. They have locker room kind of mentalities and, and actions. I know I'm going to get a lot of email for this, but and breaking into that locker room mentality, even when you are a, you know, billion, multi-billion, or in some case, trillion dollar company, um, is very difficult. And I very difficult for women, and it's very difficult for themselves to actually think that they're doing anything wrong. The old... Mm. You know, long-standing companies, they've been through wars, they've been beat up, they've been, and they're not um, sitting on the top of the mountain at 
they haven't always been sitting on the top of the mountain. They actually take input and advice. The, the newer companies are, are it's, very, it's very concerning and very disappointing that the biggest tech companies, the largest tech companies are the worst performers in diversity mm. in both gender and race. And you would say to yourself, this is it's supposed to democratize information, society, everything, give access to more. And what we're seeing is a structure of fortress being built around these companies where there are very few people that not only women and people of color, but even men who don't kind of fit into that, that genre of a guy, they are not allowed in. And I, I just don't think it's, it's, by the way, I think it's dangerous for the company. It's definitely dangerous for the nation and the nations. Right? And it's obviously not serving the general population very well. I think we have to make progress here. No more. It'll give us some time. Yeah. So maybe you're clearly advocating quotas to a certain extent, but I'm interested in your own journey because actually, a lot of these new companies have really great benefits. They give a lot of time off for women having children and parents, parental leave, not just women, but men, people adopting people. Oh, there are support networks there. What is it that you did that allowed you to have a family, still rise through the ranks? Can you be prescriptive in that way or is it impossible? No, no, I, I think let's, I want to back up to a, a, the reason why women don't progress is not because they don't have, not, it's not because they have children. I mean, that's, this, is, this is a choice by the structures today to differentiate the judgment system, the success system, They've narrowed it to fit their liking and their processes only. There is no indication, no evidence that for ha by having a child, you become less useful or, or less executive type. Not at all. So I had a child. I happened to have two children. My, I had a, happened to have a really nice husband who was old enough to, after a while to retire. My journey was I had a great company in this area, a great company that was not as concerned about how I looked. They were more concerned about what I did and how I did it. Now, I, like I say all the time, I happened to luck out to be in the best company for diversity, at least I think, in the world at the time. Not every company can say that, right? So right now, we have tried to teach them. We've tried to give them hints and tips. Get some diversity on your board. Get some diversity in your C-suite. How about hiring more at the entry level? How about looking at what happens in the middle layer? All of this over the last 20 years, these conversations have been happening over the last 20 to 25 years, and we have made very little progress. This is not because women are not trying. It's not because we have babies. It's not because we don't have childcare. It is because the structure today is not motivated to change it. Plain and simple. That's the only reason why I say, I'm starting to say maybe quotas work, right? Maybe, maybe quotas is what you have to do because if you're told that you can't operate in my state unless you have a representation, a pop, a representation of the population that's reasonable, guess what will happen? They'll get the representation and they'll see that the business still runs just fine. And once you get numbers, I think that you guys know this, but Joe or Caroline or Roman, you know this. Once you get numbers, right, the, the flywheel effect takes on. Mm -hmm. If you're the only one, it's very difficult. Even if you're one of, you know, five out of 100, it's very difficult. Once you get numbers, the flywheel effect takes, takes case and change happens. And so I think tech companies, but also banking, industrials, you name it, 
have to keep focusing on this. Right now, some of the older industries, banking, industrials, are making progress of women. They are, like I said, still stuck in the mud when it comes to women of color and people of color. But I'll take women right now, for, you know, for now. Tech companies are not making progress anywhere. We have to absolutely put a, a fire underneath them and say, you know, keep, do it or we're going to force you to do it. Another thing I will say, one other thing I will say, we are real, we are people. We are active citizens. We should be. We can make decisions about where we want to actually buy, where we want to in, use our commerce strength. I have made it a point. There are two companies that I will buy nothing from because they're, if you look at their board of directors and their leadership structure, they literally have zero people of color and they have some board members that are women and zero women in the leadership team. Zero anyone in the leadership team except for white men. Fortunately, one of them is not a U.S. company, but I think that we, we as responsible citizens have to actually start to put some pressure on these companies as well. If you're not willing to have me participate in your success, I'm, I'm contributing to your success, but if you don't want me to participate actively in how your company is governed, I should go somewhere else. That's what you're telling me, and that's what I will do with my money as well. Ursula, we just have a moment left. I want to just go back to this concept of the flywheel and bringing more people in. And one of the things that we've seen in this crisis is, of course, this huge gap open up in employment rates between whites, between people of color and so forth. One of the things that we hear from, say, the Fed or Yellen these days is this important, like, let's grow the economy really fast and for a long time and more sustainably so that everybody comes back in, so that we don't start slowing it down just when uh, white unemployment drops. How powerful of an idea or concept is that to you in terms of establishing that base, bringing in more employment, of just making sure that GDP growth, growth remains robust for a long time? It is foundational, foundational to the way that I think and to, I think, what we need in, the, in this country. We are... We have already, we started gutting out the middle, right? We literally tore it out. What unfortunately we're doing now, or what has happened now, is that we are literally destroying the lower as well. They are unemployed, are significantly underemployed. We have dislocated, we, I mean, the people have been dislocated. We have to do something to re-engage them and have them be active participants in the economy. This. We can't just keep giving them stimulus checks. By the way, we have to do that too, but that's not gonna get them going. Literally millions and millions of people, women, a large number of them women, people of color, but also middle American white guys who literally are underemployed or unemployed as we come out of this recession that never really happened. As a, right? We have the Wall Street um, unbelievable success and the Main Street disaster here. We have to bring Main Street yeah. back up to participate or else I just right. don't understand how, to, how the nation stays together. You cannot have this much dis disruption. I live in New York City and in London, and I will tell you, you walk up and down the streets, you see people on the streets now who you would never see before. There's stuff yeah. on the street. We have to engage, we have to go back to, and I think Yellen is absolutely right, we have to engage people into work. We have to engage yeah. people into participation, participation in growing this, the world again, but this country very specifically. If we don't, shame yeah. on us. Shame on us. This week, President Biden signed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that he campaigned on into law. 
This burst of fiscal stimulus into the economy has put the inflation debate front and center ahead of the Fed's rate decision next week, with some market watchers and Republican lawmakers arguing the package will overheat the economy. We got some perspective on it from Tim Dewey. Tim is an economist at SGH Macro Advisors, a professor at the University of Oregon, as well as a Bloomberg opinion columnist. We started by asking Tim if he's expecting a disciplined, consistent message from the dot plot and the central bank statement about waiting a long time before the first rate hike. I, I expect the more disciplined, consistent view is still going to hold. There's obviously a chance that someone uh, decides to increase their, their rate forecast for 2023, but I don't think it would be enough to you know, more than one participant uh, would likely do that. I think that, that we're going to get uh, the same story we've been hearing, both from the, the statement and from uh, uh, Chair Paul in the uh, press conference. So, Tim, a lot of the talk, or at least a lot of the fear of inflation rearing its head seems to butt up against an argument that had been made long before we got to this point. The idea that, that there are sort of structural forces out there, technological forces out there that have sort of created disinflation or at least kept inflation at bay. Is there any sense here that that narrative has changed at all? No, I think it's far too early to think that that basic narrative changed. And we, we think about it in terms of a flat Phillips curve, right? Is that success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. The idea here is that we can push unemployment to very low levels before we'd see inflationary pressures emerge. Uh, and those, those inflationary pressures would then actually only emerge slowly. So under those circumstances, the Fed is really focused on the, the, the employment <clears throat> situation. And we are well away from full employment. And so the Fed is, I think, serious about being patient with, uh, with, with interest rate policy as long as they can possibly be. It feels as though the market is, I mean, we're seeing it now, already pricing in inflection and inflation expectations, hitting at 2% when you're looking at the break-evens to a large extent. How much do they need to keep on just guiding the market that we're going to see eye-popping inflation numbers, but it's transitory, it doesn't matter, because at the moment the market seems to just be continuing to push it further? No, this is a this is a really great question. I mean, we know that markets are increasingly pricing in rate heights for 2023, and then even edging into 2022. Uh, and and the Fed has been fairly resolute in saying, well, we don't expect that to happen. Now, the Fed can't prove right now that they're not going to hike rate hikes, hike rates uh, in in 2022 or even 2023. What they can do is keep pushing on that message, even if inflation numbers start to hit rise here. And I think that that's where the test will come sooner than expected, uh, is if 
you know, we start to see these expectedly stronger inflation numbers coming in the months ahead. And the Fed says, well, we're not worried about that. Uh, let's see where we are in a year. Uh, that, I think, will, will be the test. Well, let me ask you a question. So the, the message that we've gotten from the Fed is that the rise in rates represents a stronger economy. They're not worried about it. And sort of theoretically, that makes sense. And it's a bet on at some point they will raise rates, but only because the economy is so strong. But do the rising rates right now at some point threaten to tighten financial conditions such that in order to get to that destination that we know they want to get to, they actually have to um, push back on it in some way? Is there a point where it becomes sort of mechanically a problem? Well, I think that that would be a yes, is that there is theoretically a point where you can imagine that uh, rates become the financial conditions tighten, and I think that's where you really need to be thinking about it. It's not so much that longer rates are rising up, but something happens to uh, uh, you know, tighten financial conditions noticeably. And, and, and what I mean is probably something outside of, of, of the expected growth in the U.S. economy. So this would be something like personal, a, a basic misunderstanding of, of, of monetary policy going forward or some kind of financial accident. Uh, those are the kinds of circumstances where I could see the Fed wanting to be much more forceful and pushing back against the, 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 the rise in long-term yields or, or, or expectations of earlier-than-expected uh, timing. Uh, otherwise, I think the Fed's going to try to sort of just reiterate their message uh, as, as patiently as they can. Yeah. Well, he seems like he's been patient so far, as far as uh, Powell uh, goes. I am curious. So, I mean, he's made it clear, too, that the focus uh, is sort of laser uh, focus right now on the job market, on uh, labor force participation. Uh, and the idea, though, that it could take us a while before we get back to pre-pandemic levels of employment. When you look at that, Tim, and you look at that goal here, should investors sort of, I guess, pay a little bit less attention, I guess, to some of the inflationary signs and pay more attention to what's going on in the labor market? Well, that's, that's the way I've been framing it, is, yes, we should be watching inflation uh, because it could, I mean, it could get, quote unquote, out of hand. And out of hand here is probably, you know, 3% rather than, you know, 20% or, or whatever your worst fears could be. Uh, and it could be something that then this starts to, to unmoor inflation expectations. And we should look at that at least, but we don't expect that to happen. What we should really be focused on is how quickly the labor market recovers. The labor market recovers more quickly than the Fed is more likely to see inflationary pressures as something that could be that could evolve into something higher than they're looking for. But if this labor market is very slow to recover, uh, then then they're going to be less concerned about the inflation numbers going forward. So I'm traditionally for for a while now focused more on um, uh, uh, you know the the stat state of the labor market per se. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. What data, though, Tim, are you looking at for the labor data? Are you looking at more fast, high-frequency data? Are you, are you analyzing NFP? I mean, how, what are the telltale signs that you're going to get a quick recovery or we're going to see actually more longer-term scarring in the labor market? Yeah, so for me, what I'm really looking at is, is how quickly we can get the employment to popula population ratio up. So it's some issue of getting unemployment down and getting people back in the labor force. And hopefully, 
later this year, if we can open the economy, if we can open schools, if we can open daycares uh, more, more, more fully, then we're going to be able to get that labor force participation numbers up. And, and that's what I would be looking for, not just any narrow sector improvement, but broad-based improvement. So the Fed's going to be watching you know, the, the employment to population ratios, and not just the population as a whole, but of subgroups within the population. I do think the Fed genuinely... Um, genuinely desires that this to be a broad-based recovery and doesn't think we can have that until we get really everybody uh, participating in, in the labor market. So this is why I'm, I, I think, I take the Fed at its, its, its word when it says it wants to be patient uh, uh, before tightening up on, on, on policy, particularly rate hikes. Then we broke down what exactly made it into the final version of President Biden's stimulus package and its economic impact with Liz Pancotti, a senior advisor at Employ America. We started by asking Liz which part of the $1.9 trillion relief bill will have the most powerful impact. Uh, I think it's a combination. I mean, I think the package was developed as a package rather than kind of ad hoc stimulus here and there. And so I think, you know, of the, of the three most impactful things, uh, unemployment has been extended or uh, topped off unemployment benefits and extended unemployment benefits have been uh, extended out to Labor Day to the uh, beginning of September. So those that $300 a week payment will be extended out to there and workers um, will receive up to 29 additional weeks of unemployment insurance. Uh, and then on the non-jobless worker front or on the other front, uh, $1,400 checks will be sent to every adult and child in households making under $75,000 for individuals and under $150,000 for couples. Uh, and then and then most notably, I think that the thing that's been on the top lines of a lot of people's analysis is the child tax credit expansion. And so that's been increased to $3,600 for children under six and $3,000 for children over six. And, uh, you know, analysis suggests that that alone will cut child poverty in half. But um, yeah. As as a whole package, uh, income for the bottom 20% of Americans will right. increase by 20%, and for the top 20% of Americans by only 1%. And this, so I think you know the package will certainly target aid where where it's needed. So this bill does seem to be a little bit more targeted towards uh, uh, middle middle class and working class people in a way that maybe that first or that that, that CARES Act necessarily wasn't. I am curious that a lot of the failures that we saw with the CARES Act came more because of the implementation rather than what was in the bill itself. And I'm curious as to whether we have any sense here as to how this gets carried out, how this gets implemented, and we avoid some of the same mistakes we made last time. I think that's right. I think the Biden administration has focused on giving aid primarily to people. And, you know, there's some business aid in the in the bill, but um, I think over half of the uh, money will be directly given to American people rather than, you know, corporations or businesses, et cetera. Um, uh, to that note, I think on the implementation side, the child tax credit namely is one big change. And so typically the child tax credit is paid out to families uh, every April uh, in tax season once a year. And now the uh, House and Senate have passed a bill or the, <laughs> the Senate will, uh, the House will pass it tomorrow morning. Um, but they've passed it to have the IRS cut that check periodically to families. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, we Our understanding is that the administration will direct that payment to be monthly. Um, the, the implementation of that we expect to start in July. And so they have quite a few months, especially after we get through the rush of tax season for the IRS to work through the implementation of that. But you know, we certainly could see hiccups there, though I think they are really prioritizing getting that money out the door in an, an efficient manner. On the checks front, getting the checks are pretty easy nowadays. Uh, so, you know, the December bill sent out $600 checks, and the vast majority of those were in folks' bank accounts or mailboxes within three weeks. Yeah. Um, on the unemployment insurance front, there's, you know, broader issues, I think, in our UI system. And this uh, does actually direct money to the Department of Labor to assist with that. On the implementation side of those things, I think there will still be hiccups in, you know, extending those benefits and getting money out the door to jobless workers, just as there have been for the past 12 months. I mean, quite amazing if it does indeed cut child poverty in half, as you say. I'm, I'm interested in the efficacy as they will deem it. You know, many felt that perhaps the stimulus checks in particular were just saved rather than spent. Is that, is that what you want to see? Some savings so that people do protect themselves for when they do suddenly have to meet? You know, the rent is no longer on hold and that they are perhaps forced out of where they're living? Or do you want to see it being ploughed back into the economy to ensure that we get this flywheel motion and everyone then hopefully sees all boats rise? I think it really is going to depend on family financial situations. You know, we know that black families on average have much less liquid wealth than white families. And so to have, you know, a beef up in savings for those families would be really impactful and certainly have an effect on, you know, financial stability for families who have been left behind in, in you know, previous recessions and, and in our labor market in general. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you want folks as soon as we've all got, you know, shots in our arms to go get on planes and take vacations and, you know, have that more discretion spending, I suspect that we might see we might see short-term savings where you know people are saying, well, I'm going to get a vaccine in two months, so I expect to spend that money in two months. Um, but I don't think you know we we have seen high savings rates of these. I think on the long-term savings front, we're not going to see long-term savings. We are going to see an injection of those kind of pent-up funds uh, into our economy over the next 12 months as as places start to reopen, we can travel again, um, all those good things. Liz, how much do you see an opportunity to make some of this stuff permanent, particularly the child tax credit? People might find that to be a very big benefit in their lives and uh, make things much easier, childcare and so forth. What do you expect in terms of the fight to sort of establish some of these things as a permanent benefit? You know, on the child tax credit front, I would hope that there's not a big fight there. You know, Republicans on the other side of the aisle have, you know, said that they're supportive of, of families, working families and of children. And so, you know, politically opposing that, I think, would be quite difficult, though we've seen them do, you know, other things in that realm. Um, I'd say that on the tax on the tax credit front for any of, the, you know, the child tax credit, there are a number of other tax credits. Um, repealing those, pulling them back is difficult. There was also an ACA, the healthcare um, marketplace subsidy uh, put in place for two years so that subsidies, uh, sorry, premiums can't be more than 8.5% of your income. I think it'd be pretty tough to claw that back and make health insurance premiums rise. And so for those two things, uh, especially, I think those will be the two things that we see stick around, even though they're only in the bill for a year or two. Um, that fight certainly won't be easy given the constraints of the Senate and, and the filibuster. Um, so I do think Democrats have it cut out for them, but I think that is a real priority for the Biden administration and they you know, will work across the aisle to get those two things uh, implemented on a long-term basis. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Meanwhile, President Biden's stimulus bill passed on a party-line vote without a single Republican vote in Congress. But the COVID relief package did garner a lot of support from the corporate sector. A couple of weeks ago, senior executives from more than 150 companies backed the legislation in a letter to congressional leaders urging them to act. The list included leaders from across industries, including the CEOs of Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, Google, and AT&T. So now that the bill is law, we got some more perspective on how the corporate world is reacting. We spoke with Declan Kelly, the chairman, CEO, and co-founder of the global consulting firm Teneo. We started by asking Declan if his clients are enthusiastic about what the stimulus can do for the economy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think that is a, even itself a, an understatement. I think the CEOs mm. have been very vociferous in their support for the bill. Uh, I think over 150 of them actually signed a joint letter to the administration and to the president a number of weeks ago. I think it's pretty obvious the market's reaction uh, is what we all expected it to be once this was passed. This amount of stimulus going into the economy and this amount of job creation and, and support for the various different efforts around the vaccine, so to speak, for themselves, allied with you know, already low interest rates and plenty of other capital available for investment. Uh, generally from the private sector. I think most CEOs that we work with in Teneo have been expecting this for the last several weeks and uh, are relieved to see that the day is finally here. The CEOs, the corporations you work with, Declan, the people you're on the phone to day in, day out, are they optimistic in general as 2021 unfolds? Yes, I would say they're extraordinarily optimistic. I, you know, I think a few months ago, they expected that 2021 would be a story of two halves, if you will. First half would be, you know, getting the vaccine distributed and administered. And the second half would be a gradual recovery uh, into a more normalized economic environment. I would say that has been delayed a little by the distribution issues that we've seen, but they're not that bad, I suppose, in general, especially in the United States relative to the rest of the world. Uh, but, you know, you're seeing very, very positive indicators around earnings, around guidance. Uh, I think consumer confidence is getting higher. I saw recent data that showed that 85% of CEOs in the Fortune 500 were very optimistic about the year ahead. We're looking at 5.6% global growth projected by the OECD yeah. uh, for 2021, 6.5% for the United States, which is the highest number since 1984. So, you know, from that perspective, I think confidence is really, really high and 
probably with some level of justification, given everything we see going into the economy. Well, on that note of confidence, and I mean, we're talking about a lot of the cash going to the public, to individual people out there. Uh, corporate balance sheets, uh, at least in a lot of sectors, are pretty flush right now. And there's a lot of speculation amongst investors about how that money could be put to use, whether it's uh, increasing CapEx spending, whether it's M&A activity, or simply something like, uh, you know, share buybacks or dividends. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that a large percentage of uh, CEOs in the Fortune 500 are really looking at their capital allocation strategy in general in light of all the things you've mentioned and given the fact that the markets are where they are. I still think there's a significant disconnect between the stock market and what I call the real economy, and, and Taneo has written extensively on this. I mean, we still have close to 10% unemployment in general when you look at the real numbers underlying. But in general... Uh, most companies are looking at significant capex and significant consolidation in certain sectors because there's more cash flowing into those sectors. I think you're going to see a lot more of that activity in the second half of the year. Um, I still think uh, it, it's a real uh, sort of lagging indicator, but I think the M&A will increase much more um, significantly as we head into 2022 because we still do have some bumps in the roads that we need to uh, to overcome. But I, I definitely see confidence coming back in and I definitely see larger deals happening in the second half of the year for sure. Declan, let me ask you a question that may be a little more on the philosophical front. Um, you mentioned this belief that this stimulus is expected to be very good for the economy. But what about just the idea that government spending and government involvement in, uh, yeah, essentially plying the corporate, the private sector with cash during periods of downturns can be positive? Because I feel like perhaps in the past, CEOs may not have been so welcoming of it, or maybe they would have feared inflation or the implications for taxes or so-called crowding out. Do you think that there is a change maybe that started with CARES or sometime uh, prior to that in how uh, corporate executives think about the potential for uh, fiscal policy, fiscal activism to uh, accelerate and help rebound the economy? You know, it's a really interesting question because, you know, we can look politically at the United States and several other countries around the world and see deep polarization, almost 50-50 split. Uh, yet there is this congregation around the middle economically in terms of a lot of the efforts to inject stimulus into the economy in the United States, but in other places around the world and other democracies, especially in Europe. So you're seeing a lot more centrism in that respect in terms of people coalescing around the need for investment. So yes, first of all, most CEOs are very flexible, nimble, and realistic, knowing that from one administration to another, you need to be able to pivot depending on what you see. But bear in mind one differentiating aspect, which is the pandemic. We haven't been through a pandemic before like this in living memory. And so a lot of those rules go out the window when you're faced with what we've been faced with economically. And I think what you're seeing uh, from a lot of corporations in the United States and, and frankly globally is that a lot of those sort of geopolitical considerations and whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat really go out the window when people see that you need the injection of stimulus. In this bill is about 350 to 400 billion for uh, expenditure in major capital cities, around, major cities, excuse me, around the United States and major state capitals in large urban areas. Uh, and I think that's pivoting to an eventual second bill, which will be around the infrastructure area. And, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen in America, not just post-World War II, but in other periods, right back to the Industrial Revolution, that when America invests in itself and put itself back to work in investing in infrastructure, it has a positive impact on the economy. I think you're going to see both yeah. parties coalesce around that in the weeks and months ahead. Declan, let's stay on this philosophical idea, because 
it's not just been a health crisis, it's been an economic crisis, it's also been a social crisis. And as we sort of head towards what, quote-unquote, might be some sort of new normal, what are CEOs saying and thinking about their new role within this as we hopefully end the pandemic? I know that you've been teaming up with Global Citizen, for example, thinking about how we can look mm. at this from a more global perspective and become a more, I mean, dare I say it, just society? Do you see an equal recovery out of this? Well, uh, thank you for mentioning the Global Citizen uh, and our partnership. We, we last week launched it. It's called a recovery plan for the world uh, with Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, and Dr. Tedros from the World Health Organization and also uh, Secretary Kerry. And a lot of other um, uh, artists like Hugh Jackman and Billie Eilish and Coldplay and Usher and many others got involved. And my role in that is to get the corporate sector to support it. And we've had people like Cisco and Coca-Cola and Delta and Verizon and Weight Watchers and Procter and & Gamble and many others at Google get involved. So we are confident we're going to get a lot more companies involved. But to the philosophical question, you know, I think 2020 brought to an end 50 years of a focus on shareholder capitalism and the stark realism for most CEOs that they need to spend a lot more time focused on ESG, mm. uh, climate change, diversity and inclusion and all those things. Yeah. And I think we're at a point where that is not going to change. And you're going to see a lot of proxy uh, reports this, this year reflecting that. You're going to see a lot of the larger institutions above and beyond the Black Rocks who have been very vociferous, of course, voting with and against those companies who don't get the memo, so to speak. So yes, I think that's here to stay. And yes, I think society will benefit as a result. And I think, you know, we're looking at that being the new reality and the new different, as we call it in Teneo, going forward. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.